It's good to see everyone this morning. Good to meet some new uh, friends this morning. Good to see my friend Lisa Wright here. Yay, Lisa. Lisa's so funny, but I tell you what, she's Johnny on the spot. I will preach on Sunday, and if I don't have that sermon posted by noon the next day, Lisa's calling me. It's not up yet, Todd. You need to make sure it's up. Yes, ma'am. I'll get right on that. Thanks for keeping me in line, Lisa. <laughs> yeah, you don't need it now. You're here in person. Now, some of you may remember back in the spring, uh, Tom and April Katie gave a testimony of God's redemptive work in their marriage relationship. You'll remember when Tom began to share that story, he uh, gave the honest opinion of how he viewed marriage and the commitment that he would have to his wife. He said, you know, if, if I ever found that at April had an affair, which she didn't, but if she did, uh, when she came home, she would find her stuff piled up in the front yard, and we'd be done. That's it. Now, what's interesting about that is the Israelites now find themselves in a very similar situation. Worshiping a false idol is like having an affair. They have been unfaithful. They have committed spiritual adultery. So the question is, is God going to load up their stuff, leave them in the wilderness and say, I'm done. That's it. No more. The Israelites are going to learn what Tom came to understand. And it is this. God doesn't give us what we deserve or we would all die. Grant and I worked on a memory verse this week, right? Lamentations 3, 23 and 24. And it starts out by saying, but because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. If we were to get what we deserve, we would all die. But God's love is not determined by our conduct. God's love is determined by his character. That verse goes on to say that his compassions never fail. That they're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. You see, God is faithful to us even when we have been unfaithful to him. Praise God. See, Tom's marriage turned around when he began to realize that he has been called to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And understanding God's love should radically transform all of our relationships in the very same way. His example should guide our heart in the way that we should go. Now this morning, when we look at our passage, we're going to see some very real consequences of the sin that the Israelites have fallen into in their worshiping this false idol. We're going to see the impact of that sin on their relationship with God. But we're also going to see the response of God to a true heart humbled with repentance. And as we see the example of how he responds, may it guide us in the way that we should go. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of our time together. May it not become so routine that it becomes insignificant. Instead, may we protect it. May we cherish it. May we steward it, not forsaking our gathering together as is the habit of some, but consider it as a privilege and an opportunity to encourage each other towards love and good deeds, and especially 
as the day draws near for your return, because that's when we'll need it more and more and more. Help us through your Spirit's work in our hearts and in our minds, see you more clearly than we've seen you before. To know you more deeply and to love you more devotedly with a heart undivided. Help us to understand that through your word this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, we'll pick up where we left off last, continuing in our study of Exodus, the life of Moses. And so Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. After having worshipped the false idol, Moses, you remember, gave them an opportunity to turn from their sin and walk towards God, and most of the people said no. And so look at verse 33. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought from the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. Now, at first glance, we might read this and say, well, this doesn't seem like a bad option. I mean, God is saying, I'm going to remove my presence, but he says, I'm going to give you an angel. And we might look at that and say, well, that's pretty good. I mean, they'll know the way to go. The angel will direct them. The angel will guide them. So this ought to work out okay, right? Right? We're going to circle back around later on and answer that question for ourselves personally. But what we'll see with the Israelites is that the issue was bigger than that. They realize as they consider that option that This means that if God removes his presence, everything he's done up to this point is put on hold. For example, he went to great lengths talking about this tabernacle, right? The place in which his glory would dwell in the midst of his people. And if he removes his presence, you don't need a tabernacle. All of that's off the table. Not only that, if God's presence is now removed from his people, how in the world are they going to have a relationship with him? How do you have a relationship with someone who's not with you? So, yeah, this is probably a bigger deal than we might realize. (laughs) Talk about a long-distance relationship. Those don't work out so well. But I want you to look again at verse 3 as to the reasoning behind what God just said. He said, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. That's my promise. I told you I would provide that for you. But I will not go up in your midst because you're an obstinate people. And I might destroy you on the way. Remember we talked about that last week. That original language instead of obstinance is a, it's a word picture. Stiff-necked. Somebody who stands tall, chest out, head tall. Refusing to bow in submission. An obstinate people. Bound to sin. And as we've already seen, even when given the opportunity, they were reluctant to repent. They were reluctant to walk away from their sin. And God's holiness must judge unrepentant sin. God 
removes his presence to protect his people from the judgment of his wrath. But God's people, give them credit, also understand just how disastrous this would be. Because look at that response in verse 4. When the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning. And none of them put on his ornaments for the Lord that has said to Moses, say to the sons of Israel, you're an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now, therefore, put off your ornaments from you that I may know what I shall do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. They mourn. They mourned because they understood that God's absence would bring a relationship with him to a disastrous end. Let's look at it in terms of a relationship here. Basically what God is saying is this relationship is going to end in a divorce. And a divorce is like death. Which is exactly why the, the people mourn. And not only do they mourn, they they take action along with that emotion. And they strip themselves of all the ornaments that they're wearing. The the bracelets, the earrings, the necklaces. All the things that they received from the Egyptians when they left that place. Those ornaments very likely represented pagan worship. Just like the ornaments that we wear often represent Christian worship. The crosses and the fishes and all those things that... That are part of our jewelry. So same thing for them. And they recognized in that moment. That those symbols of pagan worship. Had become an obstacle. In their relationship with God. And they no longer wanted anything to do with them. They were appalled. By what was used. In their unfaithfulness. In their relationship with God. Their actions that they take really are an evidence of their heart of repentance. They're removing those obstacles to their faith. They're they're turning away and walking in a different direction. And it says that they took them off at Mount Horb, which is another name for uh, Mount Sinai, and they never put them on again. So this indicates to us that this was a permanent change. This was a, a heartfelt change. They're saying, Lord, we want to have nothing to do with this because your presence among us is the most important thing. And we're unwilling to compromise. Look at how God responds to the repentance in verse 7. In verse 7 it says, Now Moses used to take up the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent... That all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his own tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his own tent." Thus the Lord used to speak with Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses returned to camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses went outside the camp in this tent of meeting in order to meet with God. 
It's important to see that God has separated himself from his people. But at least he hasn't removed his presence altogether. He's willing to meet with Moses as his appointed mediator. And when he did, the people would stand at a distance, seeing the presence of God before the tent of Moses, and they would worship. They would humble themselves, each at the entrance of his own tent. And now we're going to actually step into the tent of Moses and listen in on this conversation that he had with God. Look at verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people. But you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he, Moses, said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us from here. That's one of my favorite passages in all the scripture right there. I love what Moses just said. Lord, if you're not with us, we're not moving. If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us from here. In other words, Lord, the angel's not enough. The angel is not enough. We need you. And if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us from here. We're not moving. I think he understood what Jesus wanted the disciples to understand when he told them, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Moses understood, apart from God, they can do nothing. The angel was not enough. Now, keep in mind that this is the man who once took matters into his own hands and literally killed someone. This is the man who argued with God when he tried to commission him to do the work that he had called him to and said, please, Please pick someone else. Don't pick me. It's the same man who's now standing before the Lord and saying, God, if you're not with us, we're not moving. Because apart from you, we can do nothing. Is it safe to say that Moses' life has been transformed? And, And here's the key. We see the strength of his faith based upon his dependence upon God. That's not a weakness. That is a sign of great strength and great faith. A man who says, unless you are with us, we are not moving. Because apart from you, we can do nothing. And I want you to notice the new perspective he's gained. Look at verse 16. He says, for how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, of which you have prayed, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray, Lord, that you show me your glory. 
It's interesting that as Moses continues this conversation with God, he basically tells him, we can't know who we are as a people until we know who you are as our God. Did you hear that? We can't know who we are as a people until we know who you are as our God. His identity is wrapped up inside the relationship that he has with God to the point that he can't know who he is, they can't know who they are as a people, except through their relationship with God. Moses is saying, Lord, don't remove your presence because we are lost without you. And then he says, show me your glory. It's significant because God has said he would remove his presence, that he would move farther away from his people, and Moses saying, no, please, Lord, don't. In fact, move closer. Show us your glory. So God hasn't removed his presence, as he said he would, but as we talked about last week, God hasn't changed his mind, has he? He simply used the circumstances to help Moses and the Israelites come to an understanding that they're lost without him, that they can't live without his presence. So God agrees to allow his presence to pass before Moses, but only in part, because not even Moses can see the full presence of God and live to tell about it, okay? God allows his goodness to pass by. It's interesting that that's what the scripture tells us, that that God allows his goodness to pass by. The evidence of God's presence is the evidence of his goodness. And so for you and I, I think we can hear that and say, I see God's presence all the time because of his goodness all around me. That's the evidence of his presence, is his goodness. And he didn't change his mind about taking that presence away. He allowed his people to come to an understanding of how desperately they need him, to come to a place of heartfelt repentance. That's what he wanted all along. And so that's what he did. Since they have a desire to be reconciled with him, look what God does next. Turn to chapter 34, verse 1. Chapter 34, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets, like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered. So we've been here before, right? This is not nothing, this is not anything new. We're circling back around to where everything started in the first place. And he's saying, let's pull out another two tablets. Let me put those same words of the Ten Commandments on those two tablets, and we'll go from here. If we think about that marriage illustration that we've been talking about, instead of pursuing divorce, God is renewing his marriage vows. He's going back to that covenant relationship, and he's saying, okay, let's go through this again. Let's start in the beginning. But before he gave those new commandments, or those those ten commandments, and revisited that, he had something to say to Moses that was even more important. Look at what he says in verse 4. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. And he took the two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with him, and he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. Now, let me pause here. God's fixing to say something before he does something. 
And what he says is extremely important. So look at what he says. The Lord descended a cloud and stood there with him as he had called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps his loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. It's important to see what God has done here. A right relationship with God has to begin with a right understanding of God. Or to put it in the way Tozer would explain it, he said, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. A right understanding of God is the foundation of a right relationship with God. You see, the Israelites' relationship was not based primarily on the Ten Commandments. True obedience to the commands that God gives is ultimately an act of worship because of you you knowing who God is. It's a relationship based on who He is, not on what we do. And for that reason, I think verses 6 and 7 that we just looked at are probably two of the most important verses in all of Scripture. Because God, before doing anything, stopped to tell Moses, this is who I am. This is who I want you to know me to be so that this relationship can be everything I've created it to be. It begins with me. He says, I am who I am. I am the Lord. And I am abounding in compassion and grace. Remember, his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. It's good news that God never, ever reaches a threshold where he just doesn't care anymore. It doesn't happen. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his love. For us, he always gives us more than we deserve. That's his grace, and that's who he is. And yes, he is a God of justice who will rightly judge sin, but he is slow to anger. The New Testament in 2 Peter tells us that God is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to what? Repentance. Isn't that where he just led his people? in an understanding of what it means to be in a right relationship with him. He's abounding in loving kindness and in truth. I I love that word, loving kindness. It's the one Hebrew word that I think I could ever remember. It's the word hesed. You have to say it like you're getting something out of your throat, okay? Hesed. That word hesed means loyal love. It's a covenant love. It's a love that God has for us that is based on his promise, not on our performance. Yes, loyal love. It's a love that is grounded in truth, which means he can always be trusted. Yes, he does forgive sin, but he will not let the guilty go unpunished. He could not be a just judge if he turned his back on the guilty. He wouldn't be a loving father if there were no consequences to sin. That'd be like a parent who never disciplined their child, and that child never grew up to know the difference between right and wrong. 
And that disastrous life pattern would be passed down from one generation to the next, over and over again. So part of God's character is his unwillingness to overlook sin. It's actually an attribute of love. But even in his judgment, he always gives grace. Because he never, ever, ever rejects a repentant heart. Ever. No matter how long it takes to get there, he never, ever, ever rejects a truly repentant heart. All those attributes of God that he just described about himself coexist without conflicting one another. And I want you to hold on to that. Because basically what God just gave is his salvation name. He described his character that is being demonstrated all throughout history. And so we'll circle back around and take a look at that. Before we do, I want us to look at uh, chapter 34, verse 10. Chapter 34, verse 10. Then God said, Behold, I'm going to make a covenant before all your people, and I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth nor among any of the nations. Which, if you hear that, you're thinking, that's amazing. Because what we've understood up to this point is some pretty incredible miracles, right? And he's saying what's about to happen has never happened before. That's amazing to me. And all the people among you who live will see the working of the Lord. For it is a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. Be sure to observe what I've commanded you this day. Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorite before you, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself, that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down all their altars, smash all their sacred pillars, cut down all their ashram. For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone might invite you to eat of their sacrifice, and you might take some, and then his daughters and for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to fall into spiritual adultery. And you've been there before. God is establishing or reestablishing that covenant relationship with his people. And he gives them very, one very clear and important requirement. And it is this. It has to be exclusive. It has to be exclusive. If we go back to that uh, illustration of a marriage relationship, he's saying, if we are going to renew our vows and enter into this marriage relationship, you can't keep dating around. It won't work. It has to be exclusive. And it's important to see the jealousy of God within this context so that we don't see it as a negative attribute. That fierce protection of a husband for his wife is a beautiful thing. That fierce devotion of a wife towards her husband is a beautiful thing. It is a covenant love. It is an exclusive love. And that's what God calls us to. 
He wants it to be that important to us that we're willing to forsake all others for him. Otherwise, we end up flirting with other lovers and abandoning our commitment to God. And that's spiritual adultery. So God is calling them to something different. He wants them to trust him with an undivided heart. Now, chapter 35, God's going to go and describe all of the the building of the tabernacle. Um, He's going to invite them to give gifts of, of silver and gold. Instead of using those ornaments for building a false idol, he's going to give them an opportunity to use them to build the tabernacle as he originally intended. But it all has to begin with being in a right relationship with him. Because a right understanding of God is the basis of a right relationship with God. And that's where he's leading them. And it's interesting to see the response of the people. Look at chapter 35, verse 21. This is a great verse. Chapter 35, verse 21. When given the opportunity to contribute, this is their response. Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contributions for the work of the tent meeting and for all its service and for all the holy garments. Everyone whose hearts stirred and spirit moved. I think that pairing of those, that description is important. Everyone whose hearts stirred and spirit moved. So what it's trying to tell us here is this was an obligation. Okay? This wasn't done out of obligation. It wasn't done out of fear. It wasn't done for some selfish gain as a kickback. No, this was done with a sincere heart. They felt a conviction and they were moved to action. Heart stirred, spirit moved. The Israelites really did have a sincere desire to serve the Lord. And and what we see in them would be equally true for us. When our hearts are stirred and our spirit is moved, when we feel that conviction and are moved to action, that's what's happening there. And because their heart's in the right place, look at what happens. Chapter 36, verse 4. Look at chapter 36, verse 4. They've begun to collect everything that they need for the building of the tabernacle. And then it says in verse 4, chapter 36, And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from his own work which he was performing. So they kind of stopped what they're doing, right? And they go to Moses, and look what they say. The people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work, which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command, and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp, saying, Let no man or woman any longer perform any work for the contribution of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more, for the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for the work to perform it. When God's people give with the right heart, there's always, always more than enough. When God's people give to God's work, With the right heart, there's always more than enough. And what happens from here is that detailed description of the building of the tabernacle. Now, we're not going to go through it because we looked at the details when we talked about the design, but it's important to know why why it's here. Why it's here is because what God wants us to understand through the inspiration of his scripture is that the people did exactly as he instructed them to in that design originally given to Moses. They're going to follow it to the T. Detail by detail. 
And since we've already looked at those details, I want you to skip over to chapter 40, and I want you to look at verse 34 with me. So after describing the details of the building of the tabernacle, it has now been completed, and let's look at what happens next in chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, and they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel. So once the tabernacle has been completed, according to God's design, it says that his glory descends upon it. A brilliant light fills that most holy place. It'd be kind of like seeing a home with lights on. You know the home. You know they're there. Well, when the tabernacle was filled with the glory of God, you knew he was home. You knew he was present among his people. Notice in verse 35, when God's presence filled the tabernacle, it says that Moses could not enter in. Now, isn't that interesting? Because Moses has frequently met with God, has he not? I mean, we just talked about when he met with God at his tent. We know that he met with God at Mount Sinai. We know that he met with God... Uh, before the burning bush. There's all these encounters with God that Moses had all along the way, but now that God's presence has filled the tabernacle, it says Moses can't go in. And so why is that? Why is that? I think that if you'll remember, God said that he could not dwell among his people because he would destroy them, right? His holiness could not live in the presence of their sinfulness. That's the reality. Now, Moses was the mediator that God had chosen, and and not because of any credit on his own, because he actually tried to talk God out of it, remember? Moses was the mediator who God had chosen on behalf of the people. And he could speak to God. He could intercede for his people. He could instruct them according to God's law and God's statutes. He did all those things. But Moses could not atone for sin. Moses could not atone for sin. He could not save them. The only way that God could dwell in the presence of his people was through the blood of a sacrifice. And that's why the Day of Atonement was of such great significance for Israel. Because that was the day when that lamb was sacrificed and that blood was taken into the Holy of Holies, the place where God's glory dwelled, and it was sprinkled on the mercy seat, demonstrating what was necessary for the atonement of their sin. It didn't remove their sin. It reminded them of their sin and their dependence upon the mercies of God that are new every morning. All of that was a picture of the atoning sacrifice that would be made ultimately through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the only answer, the only answer for how sinful man lives eternally in the presence of God. Jesus fulfills that salvation name that God revealed to Moses in chapter 34. He's the one who demonstrates for us 
so that we can see and know and understand what it looks like to be abounding in compassion and grace, (laughs) slow to anger, loyal love, because the love of Christ has no limits, has no boundaries, it has no conditions. He's abounding in truth because he is the truth. (laughs) He is the way. He is the life. Our sins are forgiven because of the blood of his sacrifice that was shed on our behalf. He gave his life so that we could live eternally in a relationship with him. And it is the only way. It's exclusive. Like the Israelites, we must understand that this relationship is exclusive. He will not share our affections with other lovers. It's too important to him. And so he, forsake, he calls us to forsake all others, to, to cling only to him. Because you cannot have both God and something else on the side. It's exclusive to trust in him with an undivided heart. So next week, we're going to kind of wrap up this study. I don't know about you, but when we entered in, I had no idea that there was going to be such great significance every time we turned another corner. But that's what it's felt like to me, this one being no exception. So next week, we're going to try to put all that together. But this morning, I want us to circle back around and and consider a question that the Israelites had to face, but put a twist on it as it relates to, to you and I. You'll remember when we started off, God said, I'm going to remove my presence, but I'll send you an angel, right? I'm going to remove my presence, but I'll send you an angel. And the Israelites wept over that idea. They wept. They mourned over the idea of being separated from God's presence. And my question to us is this, is God's presence that important to us? Is God's presence that important to us. What if God said to us one day, I'm going to remove my spirit, but here's what I'll do. I'll give you my word. Would that be okay? I mean, if we look at his word, it's kind of like the angel in the sense that it gives us guidance. It gives us direction in the, in the way that we should go. So is that okay? Is it okay if God were to just remove his presence but give us his word so that we can at least know how to navigate life and find our way? It wouldn't be okay. We should object just like Moses and say, if your presence is not among us, we are not moving. And here's why. Without your spirit, we have no hope. Without your presence among us, we cannot find our way. Your word, without you, is not enough. How we respond says something about how we relate to God. God's spirit is God's presence among his people. And without his spirit, we have no relationship with God. We have got to understand that. His word is God-breathed and it is important. But without his spirit, we can't understand. We, We lack the conviction that it brings upon our heart. We're not convicted by the spirit and, and moved into action without his presence among us. 
Otherwise, God just would become a subject we'd study, not a person we would know. Apart from his spirit, we cannot know God. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And sometimes I wonder if we really believe that's true. I told you last week about the conviction that God had put in my heart about my prayer life or the lack thereof. And I was convicted of the fact that life had become so routine that I was pretty comfortable in that routine and really didn't find myself before him as often as I should have. And he got my attention. And I've really tried diligently to be faithful in my prayers before him. But ultimately, the lack of prayer revealed my lack of dependence upon him. Because prayer is a posture of dependence. And when we don't pray, then what we're saying is, I'm doing just fine on my own. So, we need to all ask ourselves, do we really believe that apart from him we can do nothing? And if so, is that supported by the evidence of your prayer life? Is your identity as a person, is our identity as a people wrapped up, tied to, connected with our relationship with God so that who we are is deeply connected to who he is in our life and our dependence upon him? This last week has been pretty interesting, wouldn't you say? With the election and all that's taken place before that, all that's taken place after that. And here's what I believe to be true. You can read what I wrote in the back of the bulletin, but let me just speak to it briefly. I believe that what we're seeing is ultimately intended to be a wake-up call for the church. It's ultimately intended to be a wake-up call for the church. If you look at throughout Scripture, you'll see that God never does a great work in the world until he gets the attention of his people. Because he wants them to be the ones who demonstrate who he is to the world around them by the relationship that they have with him. That's the means in which he has determined to work in the world. And until he has our attention, we can't expect great things to happen for his namesake. And I believe what we're seeing in our world today and in our country today is intended to be a wake-up call for the church. As Tony Evans would say, God will not skip the church house in order to save the White House. It's got to start with us. If we are God's people and we are not desperately in need of God's presence among us, if we are not diligent in prayer before him, believing in our heart of hearts that this is not enough, that an angel wouldn't suffice, that we need you because apart from you, we can do nothing. If we don't have that desperate need among us as his people, then why in the world would the world have a desire for that themselves? We've got to be able to demonstrate in the life of the church the answers to the questions the world is asking. And we can't find those on our own apart from him. We desperately need to know him because apart from him, we can do nothing. If his spirit is not with us, we're not moving. Do you believe that? That's who we're called to be. So let me encourage you to do something this week. 
Go back to Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Okay? This is God's word proclaiming from his mouth who he is. It's how he wants us to know him. That seems pretty important to me. And so maybe one of the things that you can do this week is go back to those two verses and go slowly looking through them and understanding what they mean. What does it mean for him to be compassionate? What does it mean for him to be loyal in his love? And think about and unpack those one at a time. And then take it a step further and and move from that Old Testament declaration into that New Testament proclamation through the word and ministry of Jesus Christ. What did he do in his life that gave evidence to those attributes? When was he compassionate? When was he loyal in his love? What did it look like? And then do one last thing. Decide in your heart of hearts what it looks like for you to live that out as well. What does it look like for you to demonstrate what you see being lived out in the person and work of Jesus Christ? But here's the caveat. Apart from him, you can do nothing. And so don't come to an understanding and then get up and go try to do it. What you need to do, what I need to do, is come to a place where we appreciate who God is and what that means to us, and then I need to hit my knees and pray and seek the Lord and speak with my heart what I believe to be true. Lord, if your spirit does not go with us, I'm not moving. We're not moving. Because who we are in our identity as a person and as a people is directly tied to our relationship with you. And apart from you, I can do nothing. Do you get the sense of that? I believe that in our world today, what is happening around us is intending for us to see exactly what God wanted the Israelites to see right here this morning. So let's have that same humble heart of repentance and ask him to go before us. The angel won't do. The Bible's not enough. Because if his spirit is not among us, we can do nothing. Let's pray. Father, your word is so relevant. (laughs) Here we are reading about events that took place literally thousands of years ago, and it could not be more appropriate to where we are right now today, 2016, just days after an election in our own country. We can look at what is happening in our world and see it as a wake-up call for the church because what you wanted your people to hear back in the wilderness is what you want us to hear right here in Lubbock, Texas that we desperately need you, that apart from you, we can do nothing. The angel's not enough. Unless you're with us, we're not moving. Lord, would you forgive us for navigating life as if that weren't true? Father, help us be a people of prayer, a posture that reflects a dependence upon you, that we would be fervent and devoted And that that part of our life would give proof to our belief that we can't do anything apart from you. And so we're going to come before you in humbleness and prayer. Thank you for that reminder this morning, and may we be faithful to live it out this week. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.